Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Salve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Adele Nadowski and her co-author Victoria Jewett about their paper toward the development of anti-racist and multicultural graduate training programs in behavior analysis. Dr. Nadowski is a BCBAD, an associate professor, and the founder and director of the Masters of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis program at Pepperdine University, as well as the director of research at Halo Behavioral Health. Dr. Nadowski has over 40 publications, including her books, Flexible and Focused, Teaching Executive Function Skills to Individuals with Autism and Attention Disorders, as well as a workbook of ethical case scenarios in applied behavior analysis. She currently serves on the board of directors for the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. She has previously served on the editorial boards of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis and Behavior Analysis in Practice, and as a guest editor for a special issue in Research in Autism Spectrum Disorders. Her research interests include social justice and teaching higher order skills to individuals with autism. She is a frequent speaker at conferences and on radio and web-based shows. Our second guest is Victoria Jewett, who's a graduate of Pepperdine University's ABA program, a former student of Dr. Nadowski's, who is currently a BCBA and the lead associate clinical evaluator at the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. This interview is packed with a lot of very interesting information, and I'm excited to share it with you all. Without further ado, Here's my interview with Adele Nadowski and Victoria Jewett. Hello, Adele, and hello, Victoria. Welcome to BAPCAST. Hey there. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited um, that you invited us, and I'm really looking forward to today. I am as well. It's good to talk to you, Cody. Excellent. Now, you both know to start off the episodes, we love hearing a little bit about the researchers, what their background is and maybe why they're interested in the particular type of research that they're writing about behavior analysis and practice. So would, would you mind telling us a little bit about, about yourselves? Sure, um, I can start. This is Adele Nadowski speaking. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background about me, I uh, am a biracial individual who um, is actually half Latina and half white. And um, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. 
Um, I've been in the field of behavior analysis actually since I was 19 years old, um, starting in 1995 uh, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, I got involved with the field and I was um, in an ABA class actually while I was taking lots of other behavior analysis and psychology courses and trying to decide essentially uh, which part of psychology I was going to go for. And some folks walked in, they were graduate students, and they were recruiting for uh, the UNR autism program and asked if anyone wanted to learn how to work with that population. And I signed up and that's kind of how I got in the field. And I've just loved behavior analysis ever since and have never turned back. Um, I got my BCBA in 2003. Um, and that's pretty much my background when it comes to work. I mean, you could read my bio to find out all the other specifics, but um, I also just want to mention, I also have other identities, like I'm a wife of 19 years, and I'm also a mother to a 16-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. Awesome. Now, with the sort of introduction to behavior analysis that you had, were you originally interested in working with people with, with autism or developmental disabilities, or was that sort of a, that sounds kind of fun and try it out? No, I was, uh, I had no idea. I had never even heard of autism to be completely honest with you. Um, and it was more like I was taking all these psychology courses, including, you know, developmental and cognitive and social and personality and so forth. And at the time I was so clueless that I didn't even realize there were different branches of psychology. And I saw how they all clashed together. And, um, and I actually went and met with a uh, advisor at my university and said, I really need to figure out which part of psychology I like and what, direction I want to go in because I'd like to go to graduate school and I'm looking for an internship do you know of anything and he said no I'm sorry I don't know of anything and I left that meeting kind of sad um, but then I got lucky when these graduate students came into my um, beginning intro to ABA course and mentioned this and I said you know what I I'm looking for an internship so let's do this um, and it was just one of those things where I as soon as I saw one session that was being conducted and I saw this little four-year-old boy who had very little language and he was actually learning language during a two hour session. I was just so blown away by it that it kind of just took me over and that's where I realized this is what I wanted to do. Plus at the same time, everything I was learning in all my courses made me um, question what I was learning in the other branches and the behavior analysis um, area just seemed much more like, you know, a natural science to me. So that drove me that direction as well. That's like eerily similar to my own journey to behavior analysis. And I, I think it's, it's kind of wild to me when, when people go to college knowing that they want to study behavior analysis. I'm always so impressed with that. When I have like students that, that have known since they were undergrads or before they were undergrads, they want to study behavior analysis. I'm always so surprised about that. But yeah, my experience was the same thing. I, I went to school to study psychology. I had no idea there were different sort of schools or approaches. I had just seen the movie Goodwill Hunting and I thought the sort of therapeutic relationship in that movie was cool and that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and so I went to study psychology and then got hooked in behavior analysis. Yeah, that's really funny actually that you mentioned that movie because um, originally I thought I might like to do, you know, the counseling side of psychology as well. Um, but I actually went to some retreat for a week-long um, thing in uh, Big Sur, California. And I didn't realize that what I had signed up for was essentially a week-long therapy, group therapy <laughs> session. And um, the psychologist had, you know, people crying and hitting pillows and doing all this kind of stuff. And I was sitting there the whole time going, I do not want to do this. <laughs> so it was really eye-opening for me to say, no way, counseling is not the direction I'm going in. 
I actually enrolled in a counseling program for a semester. Um, I was I was trying out that route and quickly decided it wasn't quite the, the right route for me. Victoria, do you wanna tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, my journey is a little bit different. So um, just to start off a little bit with identities, I am Black American. Um, my pronouns are she, he, they. I, um, I currently work at the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. Um, going back to my initial journey into behavior analysts, uh, behavior analysis, I actually got into the field on accident. Um, so I was originally pre-med. I applied to take the MCAT, but by the time I applied, they changed the requirements. So <laughs> now the requirements was that you had to have um, some, some uh, college credits in uh, psychology and I had absolutely none. So I applied to Pepperdine and I thought I clicked on the psychology department, but I accidentally <laughs> clicked on the behavior psychology department and I got there to the first day and for the record, Dr. Dajowski was the direct, is the director of the program and we got there the first day and I walked in Dr. Dajowski's class and she was like, welcome to applied behavior analysis. I was like, where am I? What is going on? I, I don't know what's happening. But she was like, yeah. And she started talking about autism. I'm like, what is that? So it was the most confusing experience because if I'm being frank, I was a server at Red Lobster and that was really all I knew. Like, I'm being completely honest. So uh, needless to say, I stayed in the field. It's been like the best experience of my life. It was just like the first few months were so confusing, but um, I'm happy mistakes. I, I, I'm really glad that that happened. Um, so essentially I started working in the field in 2016. Um, I worked with adults and I got my BCBA in 2018. Currently as an extracurricular, I am the lead vocalist in a metal band called Fused by Defiance. And I will be cheering on my younger brother who made it to the Olympics in the 800 meters this, actually next Friday, he'll be running. So excited about that. That's amazing. That is so cool. Congratulations to, to your brother and to yourself. Thank you. What, what, can, I, can I watch for him? What's his name, if you don't mind? Yeah, no, his name is Isaiah Jewett. I want to write that down. That's so cool. Uh, Victoria, you're, it's, I, was, I was dying laughing hearing your, your story because I, I feel like so many people sort of accidentally find behavior analysis, but your story, I think, takes it to an entirely different level. Just a little bit, just a <laughs> tad bit. <laughs> oh, I have to amazing. say, I agree. I was dying laughing too. I had myself on mute actually, but um, I remember when she introduced herself, she's like, yeah, um, I decided to go to graduate school because I was working at Red Lobster and I just needed something different. <laughs> and by the way, Victoria, I love that you're wearing your Pepperdine shirt. Way to represent. Hey. Right. Okay. <laughs> and congratulations to your brother. I'll be watching. Thank you. Victoria, do you remember if there was a moment or a class or an experience that sort of hooked you? Like, given that you really didn't know what you were signing up for, do you was there a time or an experience that was like, oh yeah, I'm in the right place? Honestly, it wasn't even that it was um, the information that got me into it. It was more the approach of the, um, of the entire school. So the way that the, the professors approached the curriculum is what kept me in behavior analysis. And the way that they kind of shaped behavior instead of hoping that, you know, they'll get it <laughs> was actually something that I thought was 
actually something that was relatively new. Um, as I said, coming from the pre-med field, it's just, you walk into class and the teacher says, all of you are going to fail. And you're like, oh, okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> but now the, the approach to the curriculum was completely different. Um, they treated each student as like an individual student and helped each, each student along. Um, and that kept me there and that helped me to understand the, um, helped me to understand applied behavior analysis a lot better. And then I conformed to the information really well. So I was like, um, I think I'm going to stay here. And um, yeah, this is great. That's awesome. And kudos to Adele and the rest of the Pepperdine faculty for, for keeping you hooked in. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> so speaking of academia, your paper uh, titled Toward the Development of Anti-Racist and Multicultural Graduate Training Programs in Behavior Analysis was something that I took special interest in because I'm a graduate program director myself at Salve Regina University. And so when this paper came out in sort of the pre-published form on, on behavior analysis and practice website, I was immediately drawn to it, reading it, and I found it to be incredibly insightful and helpful in, in my role, performing my, my role well, I think. And so I'm unbelievably excited to, to talk about this and to hear more about this paper. For those who have not had the opportunity to, to read the paper yet, could you introduce us sort of broadly to the purpose of this paper and what you're aiming to do? Yes, absolutely. Um, so essentially, uh, last summer, um, you know, things were a little bit crazy um, in the world. And um, I found myself uh, learning that there were all kinds of uh, opportunities to learn about this topic. And I felt like a personal responsibility um, to do the best we could by our students and our faculty and our staff. And um, essentially, I felt a little bit uh, clueless and helpless um, of not really knowing much about the topic. And but wanting to just do so right by those populations that I felt um, compelled to basically spend my summer last summer learning and educating myself about anti-racism and um, to try to figure out what we could do at a programmatic level of, of our graduate training program at Pepperdine to ensure that we were taking this anti-racist and multicultural approach. And um, so, you know, I essentially embarked on that mission along with another faculty member of Pepperdine, Dr. Lucene Garapetian. Um, we decided together that it was our mission um, to figure out what we could do for our program to go in that direction. And we just really didn't know what we were gonna start with and what to do. So we just did a ton of research on it. And as we were doing the research, we decided it would be um, useful to write a paper about it. Um, and that's kind of how the idea got started. That's amazing. Uh, reading the paper and seeing the sheer amount of sort of research and resources that you've packed into this paper, I'm blown away that you started it in, in the summer and then it was in pre-published form by September. I can't imagine how much time you must have been spending in those months to, to complete a project like this. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty, um, a, a, I thought we were gonna write a short paper. <laughs> um, the plan was, you know, 
I remember us talking and saying, how long do we want this paper to be? And, it, and I said, like, you know, about 10 pages or so, you know, and I started with an outline and then we grew it from there. And um, I'll let Victoria talk in a second, explain how she got involved on the paper. But um, it just once the lit search started happening and we really dove into it, it just turned into something much larger than we ever imagined. And I think also the approach that we took to writing the paper really um, helped as well. And um, what we essentially did was uh, the three of us would go on Zoom and we would have writing meetings and we would do them several times a week and they would last several hours. And um, we each took different portions of the paper that we would be in charge of and we would uh, write. And so we'd be there together writing, you know, kind of quietly and separately, but we could ask each other questions and bounce ideas off each other. And also say, you know, I'm writing this, I wanna make sure you're not writing that in your section and so forth. So it was really an amazing experience. Well, and it's a well-constructed paper. You know, some papers you can tell when different people are writing different sections, like the style changes, you're seeing repetitive information being presented. This paper has a, a solid flow throughout that it, you can tell that it was a very collaborative process. And for those, again, who haven't been able to check out the paper in print form, uh, for perspective, the paper is 16 pages, which is very much a, a doable read. Um, but for perspective, when, when Adele said that she was originally aiming at 10, paper, or 10 pages, it, it went a little bit longer than that. And I have, I have um, compassion for you for that because every paper I write, I pretty much have the goal to write in six pages. Sometimes I accomplish that. Sometimes it's like 23, 30 pages. <laughs> so uh, sometimes they, they take a life of their own. Victoria, do you want to tell us about how, how you got involved with this paper? Sure, yeah. So I just want to add to that, that we actually had a lot more pages. <laughs> we just decided to consolidate it a little bit. Um, so yeah, how I got involved is, um, it's, it's kind of similar, but kind of separate. So. Uh, I had been doing my own research into anti-racism specifically, um, and I had heard from an ex-classmate that um, Adele and Lucene were working on research for it. So I reached out to Adele and I said, hey, would you like some help with that? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, and uh, I had a, a really good conversation with, with her and, Luce, and Lucy about what they wanted to talk about, what they wanted to accomplish, and their goals and their values aligned very well with mine. Um, and then I was able to continue on and um, complete a few sections with them. And I highly appreciate being involved. Um, it was really a really good experience to work with some um, really brilliant minds and kind of um, have what I'm saying going into this paper impacting people of completely different um, cultures and in general. I love that. And, and I love the initiative you took. And I hear from a lot of people interested and, and maybe doing research, contributing to research, contributing to writing. And they always ask me, how do you get started? And I th think you just provided the answer. You email people, ideally people you have some sort of connection to and say, hey, uh, yeah, I hear you're working on this thing or maybe you don't know what they're working on. You simply ask them, but it's been my experience in the field of behavior analysis and, and both of you can speak to this if you want, but people are like, yeah, uh, we'd love to help. Here's what I'm thinking about doing, or do you have ideas? And I find the field of behavior analysis, honestly, to be, for the most part, very open to collaboration and, and partnering on things. For those who are unfamiliar with the terms anti-racist or multiculturalism, 
before we dive into how those can be embedded and probably why those should be embedded in graduate programs, could one of you provide a sort of an, a, a general introduction to, to what those terms mean and why they're important? Sure. So anti-racism. Um, essentially, when we were reading through the research, um, it took us to one of uh, Dr. Kendi's books, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, one in, Inside that book, he quotes something from Angela Davis, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to also be anti-racist. Um, and essentially, when it comes to anti-racism, if you look at the definitions of the words racism and anti-racism, racism is just a system that is upheld by a racial hierarchy. So therefore, in order to oppose that system, you have to be an anti-racist and you can't just be not racist. So simply by living in America of a higher status and a higher status being a higher uh, racial um, category, you are engaging in racism. But if you are being an anti-racist, you are uprooting the policies, you are um, uprooting the, the, the social construct. There are certain things that you are actively doing in order to show or in order to uproot something that is so systemically prominent within any type in within any of the systems within America. So being anti-racist kind of just puts on an actionable um, an actionable behavior to uh, kind of thriving throughout society in a way that isn't. I guess you can say that isn't necessarily complacent. That makes sense. Thank you for that explanation, and I, and I love that. From from your explanation and from my own research, anti-racism really seems to emphasize action and behaviors. What could be more consistent with our field and sort of our approach to to looking at issues? The the, the term multicultural or multiculturalism. How does that tie into anti-racism or or the topic? So multiculturalism, it's basically um, establishing an identity. So when it comes to anti-racism, one of the first things you want to do is increase your awareness. So we preach to multiculturalism because essentially what we have been doing as a society is living in a colorblind society. And when you live in a colorblind society, what you're doing is you're silencing the problem of color. So we brought to light the issue of multi, uh, or not the issue, I guess, we brought to light the awareness of multiculturalism in order to, I guess, not allow someone to escape from the root of the problem um, and to allow them to have in their mindset that they are gonna be aware that we are going to be talking about specifically different types of culture and how we behaviorally interact with them and how we can create actionable ways in order to bring um, their differences to light. So am I understanding it correctly in that multiculturalism is sort of the educational or like the awareness part of some of these factors that's related to racism, which obviously then relates to the need for anti-racist actions? Am, am, I, am I? Yep, that, that is correct. Awesome. Thank you. And so your paper not only does a, a really nice job of describing all of those pieces in the introduction, you then take specific, in my opinion, anti-racist steps by looking at how we can embed these things, these concepts and, and, and these actions within graduate programs, right? And so your paper breaks down sort of four levels 
within graduate programs that, as you label them as organizational infrastructure and leadership, curriculum and pedagogy, research, and then faculty, students, and staff. And within each of those, you talk about specific actions that anyone associated with a graduate program can take, should take to, to emphasize multiculturalism and anti-racism. You provide a, a really phenomenal table and I am, I'm always referencing tables in this podcast. I recommend to the listeners out there, if you, if you can't commit to reading the entire paper, the very least download the paper and look at the table. This may be the most thorough table I have ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. I'm not kidding you. Like there's so much rich, useful information in this table. It's an, it's insane. I mean, it's 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 literally the most in-depth table I've ever looked at. Thank you so much, Cody. That's really sweet of you to say. And I have to tell you that um, it was actually Lucene Garapetian who took the lead on making the table and she made it like two or three times the size of what it ended up being. Um, <laughs> and we had to cut it back. So um, really appreciate that. But yeah, I, the thing I like about the table is I feel like it provides a really nice to-do list. You know, it's, it's here's things you should look at and consider um, if you want it in a quick snapshot. Exactly. If, if you want to take anti-racist actions and, and you're related to a graduate training program, you could literally pull up the table, kind of go to your applicable section, <laughs> move your finger across and go, yeah, I, I can do this or I can do that or, or try the various things. It gives you quick snapshot ideas. So it's amazing. For a more sort of in-depth review of those things, obviously, that's what we're going to be talking about in our podcast today and also the paper provides. So if we sort of hone in and narrow in specifically here on the first section, which is organizational infrastructure and leadership. Can you give us a, a sort of a, a general overview of really what that means in a, in a graduate training program, like what that category is really referring to, and then maybe start talk, thinking talking about uh, some of the anti-racist or anti-racist and multicultural components that to maybe embed? Yeah, sure. Um, so. You know, this really gets at the leadership and kind of how the organization runs um, with its vis vision, mission, and values. Um, so it involves leadership kind of coming together and um, hashing out what are our values um, and what do we want our mission to be with respect to um, anti-racism and having people that are in charge and that are going to make that sure that happens. Um, so things like having a director of diversity um, and putting together committees or cabinets or um, individuals who are essentially going to take the time and effort to actually look at all of the different policies and uh, procedures and things that are going on in the organization and to question them and to gather data and assess and find out what are the needs and where are we um, have areas we can improve on and putting together initiatives and collecting data and monitoring. So that's essentially what the organizational infrastructure and the overall process looks like. That makes sense. For those who are less familiar with training programs, graduate training programs, could, could you sort of specify who you're referring to in, in leadership? Are you talking about like university presidents or are you not talking that high up? Like where, where do you see the, the specific leadership level? 
Um, well, you know, I think that really depends on each um, unique program and what's possible. So for instance, um, there's going to be certain points where there's administration and red tape and things like that, that make it nearly impossible, especially if it's, um, you know, really rooted in racist policies um, that are going to be hard to break through. And if that's the case, then it might just have to be that the program uh, directors or chair of a, their, you know, a behavior analysis program are doing this in their own little silo if they have to, you know, like that's the worst case scenario. But the best case scenario is that this is happening at the university level um, and that the university is actually hiring a uh, diversity director and they have diversity initiatives and maybe even grant money and other things set aside to, um, you know, encourage individuals to come up with their own ideas and so on. But I also think at the department level, you should have some leadership that takes it over as well. So um, if just the larger university is doing it, it may not be trickling down to the individual uh, departments. And so I think it's important that the chair or director of the department gets on board as well and creates um, faculty committees as well as student committees. And those committees can also intermingle with each other to come up with initiatives, but it's also um, probably helpful to have separate ones because they'll focus on different things like the faculty committees are going to be more involved with deciding, you know, how can we decolonize our syllabi and um, how can we make sure that our BIPOC students are feeling um, included and all those kinds of things. And students might be, you know, wanting to read certain things together in a journal club or um, provide, you know, support networks um, for students to talk about uh, various issues with each other and then maybe come back to the faculty and report certain things or whatever. So um, I would do it at both levels. That's my recommendation. That makes sense. Control what you can control in your own department. You should emphasize it as, as much as you possibly can, but you should also be advocating for the levels uh, higher than you and university-wide. For the diversity director role that you sort of uh, recommend is, is being important. Is that something that is sort of, would that be a university-wide sort of diversity director that you're recommending? Or is that something even within a, a, a program or a, a, a department that, that may be useful? If your leadership for anti-racism can only start in your ABA program, then your director will start in the leadership of that. Um, but if it can go higher and it can go to the entire, um, entire leadership of the school, then the director should also um, be at that level because the fact of the matter is that the leadership is in control of the policies, the procedures, and what the school is going to be, um, what, what, they're going, what the expectations of the school are going to be in general. I have to imagine that having a truly anti-racist graduate training program or department has to be difficult if the university isn't supporting those things. As you said, the university holds so much power. So if, if they're preventing anti-racist actions from occurring, it's, it's obviously gonna be difficult for you to make it work at the graduate program level or department level. To sort of harken back to the, the diversity director, I'm so interested in, in that role. Would the responsibilities of a diversity director be similar to or complementary to things like diversity committees. In my experience talking with colleagues around academia, it seems that a lot of diversity committees are popping up. I haven't really heard as much about sort of diversity directors. And so I'm trying to 
I'm trying to figure out if there if there's a difference if those two groups or two responsibilities may overlap and what that could look like. You know, it's interesting because actually, um, I think quite a few universities have them now at the university wide level, but they don't really call them often diversity directors. They call them chief diversity officers. We actually um, made a conscious effort to remove the word chief and officer from that title. Um, simply due to the, the connotation that it sounded very similar to the police, essentially, right? So that actually can feel alienating to a diverse population. Um, so we purposefully use the word diversity director, and that may be what potentially could be throwing individuals off, but it isn't uncommon for universities, especially nowadays, to be hiring a chief diversity officer. And they're doing more like larger things for the entire university. They have like lots of different initiatives usually. Oftentimes you can even go on the website of the university and um, you can look up what's going on and they'll have like a lot of different um, initiatives listed as well as um, like a diversity council and things like that. And they're doing more things at the larger university level and there might be like speakers or opportunities to get grant money or this or that that these individuals do, but it doesn't necessarily um, always trickle down to the individual department. So you can't really assume necessarily that that person, if you have them, is going to be coming to your you know, college and talking to your department and trying to get you to do your own initiative to do initiatives. So you really do have to take the lead on that a lot of times as your own um, department. That makes sense. And within the department, you emphasize in your paper or suggest in your paper that departmental missions should reflect the anti-racist sort of values and actions. C could you speak about why that is important and perhaps some of the language or ideas that should really be embedded in different missions? So this is important to establish accountability. So if within uh, your statements, your mission statements, your values, your diversity statement, or your, your, where you're expressing a commitment to diversity, you're saying we as an organization are taking a stand this is exactly what we're going to do, X, Y, Z. As you said, it's very behavior analytic um, in nature. So I, as a student, I go to you and I say, hey, this is your mission. This is your values. This is what you are doing. This is what I need you to do. And the fact of the matter is that by setting up those missions and setting up those values, what you're doing is you're setting an expectation. So once you set that expectation, you can actually collect data from that and you can hold yourself accountable in the future. Um, and this is really important when it comes to creating something like a, a strategic plan. Um, so if in the beginning of, um, in the beginning stages in which you're trying to implement these anti-racist policies, your plan, your plan encompasses of, we will um, gain a retention rate of a specific percentage. That's something that you, that's objective, something you can go back and look directly at, something that if I am a student or if I am a teacher and I'm saying we're not meeting it, it's something that I can then argue, argue, to, um, argue to leadership and say, hey, this, is, this intervention, quote unquote, is not working. What are some other steps we can take? So essentially when we're creating these anti-racist um, policies and creating these expectations, what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to see that there is no, at no level, there is no point in which race power plays a factor, if that makes sense. So like the output of, um, the output of our policies is getting us an input of equality or equity. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and I love, again, your emphasis on objectivity and data collection. These are things that can be objectively, empirically evaluated, right? These, these aren't these sort of ethereal sort of concepts of, yeah, multiculturalism. No, these are things that we can legitimately uh, embed within our programs, collect data on it. And as you said, sort of look at different interventions um, to see uh, how to improve in those areas. Are there any other important considerations that we haven't talked about related to this level, the organizational infrastructure and leadership? I don't think so, because we've even touched on the process, you know, um, which if anyone does take the time to download the paper, there's a little um, figure in there that kind of explains the process, but it includes assessment and um, figuring out, you know, where you need to improve and data collection. And I feel like Victoria touched on those as well. So I think we're good. That's awesome. Before you began describing the curricula and pedagogy section, you introduced the term cultural humility. Could you talk about what that term means and, and, and why that's going to be applicable as we continue talking about the sort of inclusion of, of these concepts within graduate training programs? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the literature, there's actually a lot of research on um, two terms, um, cultural uh, competency or competence and cultural humility. And um, someone even came up with a term that they, where they put the two together called cultural competent humility or something like that. <laughs> I might be butchering that a bit, but um, there's been some argument actually in the, in the literature about, you know, is it cultural competency or is it cultural humility? And I think it's because the word competency makes it sound as though you've reached an endpoint and you've checked the box and you can say, I'm done. Um, in reality, that isn't the case. Um, you are always going to be a lifelong learner when it comes to um, learning this, and it is not going to be something you can say I've arrived. So because of that, um, it's somewhat preferred by um, some individuals, and I would say people argue back and forth about this, but to use the term cultural humility, which um, basically is just saying that I am going to be open to other cultures and other people's ideas and perspectives, and I'm going to listen to them without judgment and with curiosity um, when they say have something to say, and um, I want to learn um, from them, and that I'm going to make mistakes now and then, and kind of being willing to be vulnerable and to actually put yourself out there and do your best to uh, be an ally in those sorts of things. Um, knowing that you're going to make mistakes instead of being frozen. I think one of the things that happens a lot of times is that individuals who don't feel like they have all the answers yet, they don't feel that they're culturally competent, they haven't reached their, you know, I'm there yet kind of a phase, they don't know what to do when certain situations occur, and they literally kind of almost go into a paralysis, hmm. and they do nothing. And unfortunately, this gets back to the definition of racism and anti-racism and so forth, is if you do nothing, you're literally in the category of racist, unfortunately, because you're allowing the status quo to continue. You're allowing people to get stepped on to microaggressions to occur and so forth. So um, cultural humility involves, you know, being able to learn from your mistakes 
and to say you're sorry and apologize and tell people what you're willing to do next, you know, um, not putting it on them to say, can you educate me about this? Because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but to say, here's what I'm going to do to improve myself and how I'm going to be better in the future. Um, first of all, that was a great explanation. I also wanted to add um, to that, that cultural humility is essentially anti-racist in nature um, because it does go against one of the morals of racism, which is pride. Mm -hmm. um, so I do want to say that uh, by practicing this, you uh, on an everyday basis, going through this um, ongoing personal accountability, you are being um, actively anti-racist. As you, as you guys both described, cultural humility is, is a critical skill for all peoples. And, and let's say also say, especially for behavior analysts. For people looking at graduate training programs, is the curriculum and pedagogy one of the ways in which we should be emphasizing and training cultural humility? Yes, absolutely. Um, essentially, we can be demonstrating cultural humility in the way we teach. So, um, you know, I've been trying to think about this a lot and figure out what I'm going to be doing in my courses um, this coming fall. And um, I want to be authentic and I want to show my vulnerability and I want to show um, who I am a bit and that will hopefully make the class feel more inclusive um, and open up for the students an opportunity for them to tell me more about them. I want to ask them what, you know, how would they like to be identified? I realize now that it's not, I'm not going to make any guesses on people's pronouns and um, how they'd like to be referred to or identified. Um, and if that, that's not something they have to say, like, you know, out loud in front of the whole class, because maybe it's a personal thing and they want to keep it to themselves. So I'll give them various avenues of, of ways they can respond anonymously to, you know, which is a more inclusive um, teaching approach as well. But so there's that, you know, being culturally uh, showing cultural humility in the way that you actually teach your courses. If you say something in class and um, a student disagrees for some reason, um, being able to hear it from their side. So I think cultural humility has a lot to do with listening. So um, someone who's culturally humble listens a lot and doesn't immediately react, isn't always waiting to uh, have their turn to talk, you know, um, and is willing to hear other sides of um, how things could be. And then, you know, we wanna teach our students to be culturally humble as well in their um, clinical world. So for instance, you know, when they are working with clients, they need to be doing um, assessments that are uh, show cultural humility. So rather than making all the decisions and dictating how things are gonna go, which I know behavior analysts are super smart and they know how to do things, but they need to actually ask the families, you know, um, about their languages that they prefer to use. And um, if they're teaching skills, is there a certain way that we should do it that would fit in best with your family and the way that, um, your culture does things. Do you have any like particular holidays um, from your, you know, family that you want to celebrate, or maybe you can't have sessions those days, or maybe you want us to teach your child how to do something for um, their bar mitzvah or something. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be various things like this and we have to um, go into it with asking all of those questions and being really super open and realizing that just because we learn to do something a certain way, isn't the right way. You know, I heard a lot of really great examples of this, by the way, at the, um, I attended the Black Applied Behavior Analyst um, Conference on Juneteenth, 
um, weekend. And there were so many cool examples of, you know, even just using the toilet. Um, some people don't use a sink to wash their hands. They use a, a bowl of water, uh, various things like this, right? So it's all of that as well. Um, and also realizing that the goals that the, the students are going to be choosing need to be show cultural humility. They need to be talking with the families to decide what's important to them and what do they want to work on? Because although you know, we might have our special assessment with very specific teaching sequences. It shouldn't be that cookbook approach. It should be, what are your needs and what's going to, you know, provide the most buy-in for the family and how are they going to feel like their needs are being met? And that this is a collaborative approach, not a top-down, you're going to do what I kind of say approach. So yeah, it's really important to both show it as a professor, as well as teach it to the students. That makes sense. Within the sort of instructor approach are there resources or things people should read or think about to sort of help develop that self-awareness to sort of be able to to model it better as an instructor so when we talk about the resources it kind of segues me into um decolonizing the syllabus Mm. um so the resources that we may read as teachers will need to reflect that as well. So are the articles that we are, um, are, we are assigning all uh, written by a specific type of person with the same identity? Um, what are some ways in which we can uh, um, disseminate some information that may, be, uh, that, may be, that may encompass a way in which a different type of student will be able to conform to the information. So when it comes to looking specifically to different types of information, it really comes down to the process in which you choose the information that you're going to use. Gotcha. Within the paper itself, we do mention a couple of resources, um, some self-awareness tools like the diversity self-assessment tool, as well as the multicultural sensitivity scale. And then also, if you go on to Georgetown University's National Center for Cultural Competence website, they actually list a very um, lengthy list of diversity assessment tools. So all of those can be used. Um, I also just want to mention for a sec here that um, I'm currently involved with a group of women faculty. Um, We call ourselves Behavior Analysts for Black Lives Matter, um, and we have a Facebook group. It's all women, um, and we've been meeting for about a year, and... um, We meet usually twice a month, once as a larger group, and then uh, we have individual committees that meet also once a month. And I'm on the teaching committee. And uh, so that group has actually been also putting together some resources. Um, And I just want to, you know, also give a little bit of recognition to some of these people. So I'm going to just list some of them. And I apologize if, if I've forgotten anyone, but Katie Wisco is kind of the chair of it. And then we also have um, Megan Deshay. Uh, Katie Kessner, Caitlin Goki, Stephanie, Kin- Stephanie Kincaid, and Lucene Garpetti. And those are the folks that are involved with the teaching committee, but the actual uh, group, and there's many other committee- committees like research and so forth, is much larger. But anyways, this smaller teaching committee group we put together um, recently through our work, we've come up with more resources. So I'm happy. I don't know how it works um, with this podcast, but we can link um, to anything that you sort of have links to or suggestions for. Okay. Yeah. So we could put together and give you, cause we've been compiling that information. I just don't have it all memorized. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you, Cody, as I said, a year ago when this was on my radar, 
I didn't really know a lot, you know? And so I did this because I knew I, it was a deficit, you know, area for me and it was a weakness and it was an area I needed to be, uh, learn about because I, it was important to me uh, for my values. Um, so, um, I'm not able to rattle off all kinds of things that people should use and so on, but I do have these things, um, typed up and saved and lists and so forth. So I'm happy to share. That's amazing. Yeah. And we'll link to all of that in our show notes. And I think your answers highlight the concept here that this isn't like a, you do one 10 answer or 10 question online survey and now you're self-aware and, and, and you're no longer racist or you're, you're, you're being anti-racist. It, it's going to require a little bit more self-development than that. It's not going to be, here's one book you can read or anything quite that simple. I mean, that that's sort of what I'm hearing you guys say and certainly what I've sort of explored myself it takes more work and, and you guys can provide some, some resources. It sounds like to, to help people get started. And I think that's, that's, that's phenomenal. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. You describe within the curriculum and pedagogy section, sort of three ways of explicitly teaching anti-racism, cultural humility, multiculturalism, to graduate students. You kind of organize those as, as I'm reading it anyway, under sort of specific coursework focused on those topics, modifying existing courses to some extent to, to include this, this information, and then within practicum settings. Could you speak about sort of each of those different categories and what are some of the like nuances for a course that's focused specifically on anti-racism are there certain things that people should be including in those courses and again i don't expect you to to be able to list the exact textbooks or anything like that but are there are there are concepts or ideas that should be embedded in something like that versus like how can we include this in our existing assessment class and how can we embed this within our practicum? So I'm gonna, if, if it's okay, I'll take this one because um, this is actually something that we've been working really hard on um, for maybe like the last three to six months. Time flies, so I don't even know anymore. <laughs> but um, one thing I wanna mention is that we actually at uh, Pepperdine hired um, our second, our, so I was the first faculty that was full-time there. And then we hired Dr. Luce Nagarpedian. And then now we have a third full-time faculty and it's Dr. Elizabeth Fong. Um, and um, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but I personally think she's the most um, well-versed person in the field of behavior analysis when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, so we've been really excited to have her on as faculty. And uh, we she and Lucene and I have been working on trying to decolonize our syllabi. And so we actually, um, you know, first started with, we need to at least have two articles in every single course that brings in other people's perspectives, um, is written by other folks that are, you know, not necessarily white. Um, also maybe talks about some of the different, uh, you know, marginalization and things like that. So uh, that was really helpful because it was able, you know, like for the research methods class, for example, it brought in, you know, um, readings that have to do with, um, you may have seen some of the work by um, 
Broadhead and colleagues, as well as Lee and colleagues and Jones and colleagues um, about, you know, how we should probably be, you know, reporting demographic information and in research that we publish, um, as well as going even outside of our field and bringing in some um, studies that have been done in the past that have been harmful towards BIPOC and talking about that in research, um, like the syphilis Tuskegee studies, as well as um, what happened with Henrietta Lacks's um, cells and they not, you know, use them without her knowledge and her family never got paid for them. And um, if you're not familiar with her, um, she's a black woman who had cancer and they took her cells and never told her, but they have been using them for years and it's actually helped advance cancer research and stuff like that. And the family was never comp uh, compensated or even told about it and they found out. So we've been bringing in like these kinds of readings and stuff. And then it like, it centers around discussion about, you know, like, what should we be doing in research to make sure that we're not harming people and that we're actually seeing people's perspectives and maybe um, collaborating with them more. There's a new paper that just came out by um, Pritchett and colleagues um, in the emergency special issue of, about police brutality and BAP, where it really talks about models that have been used by others where you're it's more of a collaborative approach during research so like those kinds of things have been brought into our research methods class and then like with the assessment class we brought in um matsuma's work on the cifa which is the culturally informed functional assessment um and some other tools you know so or articles on functional analysis where they looked at the differences in languages used and so forth so we really tried hard to do that i also have that list as well um, that I'm happy to share with the BAP um, audience. So in addition to, you know, adding these readings to each of the courses that were already embedded, we decided to also uh, develop a brand new course that we were able to get approved by University Academic Council to be a required course by all of our um, Masters of Science and ABA students, which is, um, we titled it Multiculturalism and Diversity in ABA. And Dr. Elizabeth Fong is actually heading up the development of that course. And so that's really nice too, because we're able to really focus in and hone in on this as one individual topic, in addition to doing it across all the different um, areas of ABA. So in that type of a course, you know, it goes into teaching kind of what cultural competence is and talks about biases and helps them to learn about um, explicit and implicit bias. But it also, since it is also a diversity course, it brings in the neuro neurodiversity movement and ableism. Um, it talks about trauma, uh, women in ABA and research um, issues, and working with all the different various socioeconomic populations. Brings in, of course, the ethics code and some of the new stuff that's in there with respect to diversity, supervision, um, how to conceptualize interventions for autism, um, mentions the LGBTQ plus population. And then it even goes into using Connor's and Capel's new book. Well, it's actually not that new anymore, I guess, but um, on multiculturalism and diversity in ABA and has them read that book. So they learn in that book about working with different um, clients from different racial and ethnic groups. So they'll you know read about all the different groups and some of those sorts of things. And then um, has them really like spend time in class learning and reflecting and um, lots of, you know, like taking a journal and that sort of stuff. So there's that course as well. And then in practicum, it's just about, you know, making sure that whenever they're giving their clinical presentations, 
that they're always required to include diversity and inclusion and equity within that. So as part of that practice, they're supposed to explain what did you do for assessment that touched on these issues? Um, how did you design your treatment plan that also made sure that you were incorporating these issues? And um, what issues did come up for you and how are you getting through them and how are you educating yourself and so forth? That's really, really helpful. And I think that's a tremendous resource you've provided to, to faculty members, to graduate training directors. So thank you. Uh, I do wanna be respectful of everyone's time. We do have two more pieces to, to look at. And so I'm gonna segue now into research and how anti-racism and multiculturalism can be included in, in research. And I love right at the beginning of this section, you, 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 to quote you um, in your very first sentence, you say diversity in research is not simply understudied, its necessity for consideration is generally up for debate. And I thought that was such a powerful statement. Could you, could you speak about what the issues are related to a lack of representation and everything else uh, within research and what we can do about that? So first off, I just want to say Victoria wrote that sentence. <laughs> Yay, Victoria. Okay, go for it, girl. Sure. Um, so thank you, first of all. I appreciate it. Um, so essentially, when we're saying that it, it it's not something that's necessarily, it, it's not something that's only understudied, it's something that's even up for debate. The fact of the matter that the fact of the matter is that it's up for debate because it doesn't seem like it's something that's necessary. And that's preaching to, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, the colorblind rhetoric. Um, that colorblind rhetoric was instituted actually by, I believe it was both Nixon and Reagan to kind of usurp the civil rights movement. So essentially when these things happen in research, it's really just our social, I guess like our learning history kind of just seeping into um, what we know. Um, and the problem with this color, colorblind approach is that it not only it can not only uphold and like promote racist tactics, it can interfere with the external uh, validity. So let's say, and I think this is one of the um, examples we used in um, the paper. Let's say we're trying to teach um, children with autism to approach authoritative figures without going into um, understanding the racial boundaries there we uh, will miss the we'll miss the fact that there is this this learning history with the police in particular with people um, with with BIPOC and we'll miss some of the uh, some of the variables there and we won't be able to see that hmm, maybe this data point is a little bit decreased because of this power imbalance that we're refusing to look at. <laughs> um, and essentially that, that's hurting our research. It's not only hurting our research, it's hurting the, the people that we are trying to help. It's hurting the people involved in the research. So when we consider people as a colorless element, we are not taking into account the fact that they also may mistrust you as a researcher. So uh, we go, as uh, Adele was talking previously about the Henrietta Lacks cells, this is something that's really popular in the black community. The black community in general does not trust researchers. So if I, as a researcher, if I say I was a, a white researcher approaching an African-American or a black American family saying, hey, 
we're going to do research on your child in my clinic. That's not going to come off very well. <laughs> so being able to understand that, that, um, that power and balance and understand that learning history is something that's only going to help research. Not to put you in the position of solving this issue, but are there things that researchers should immediately begin doing? Um, the, the best thing that researchers can be, begin doing is to have complete transparency and to be completely open with the information about consent. Um, there are a lot of times in which um, I guess some families will not understand or know consent um, or even know what their rights are as a patient. Um, so being very open with that can be a, a first step, in my opinion. Um, I, I know I can't solve the problem, <laughs> but it's also like a part of our ethics code to go ahead and um, drive forward that consent. And I think that another thing you can do is use layman's term more often um, and kind of conform to the language of the researchee. That makes a lot of sense. I'm the, the vice chair of Solvay's IRB. So we, you know, review people's research. Part of that is obviously looking at the informed consent process. And it's so critically important that researchers use language within informed consent that people are going to be able to understand. Otherwise, it's not informed consent. <laughs> it's a signature on a piece of paper that someone didn't understand, right? So I really like that point and appreciate that. I also have to imagine uh, or, or sort of know via reading your paper that reporting demographic variables is, is very, very important for researchers across the board, any sort of particular um, avenue or sort of research focus you have, it's probably gonna be important to, to report demographic variables better than we have as a field in general. Are there any other things that researchers especially should be thinking about? I mean, I think that we should be reporting now also the researchers demographics um, because then you can see what kind of power differentials may be in place um, that could have actually also, you know, had something to do with the types of results um, that may have been obtained. So I think that that's gonna be something that I can see in the future um, that people will be doing. That's really interesting. Um, I guess to, to just do a quick question off of that, do you think that that would be something that should be added after the peer review process? Or do you think that should be something that is acknowledged prior? you know, theoretically, as, as a reviewer, I don't have any idea as to who the paper, who wrote the paper that I'm reviewing, which is good, because that way it, it should ideally eliminate some level of uh, bias. Mm -hmm. If I know the sort of demographic variables of the author, A, that might actually give me a, a clue to that individual's identity. Or even if I don't know the individual's identity, I could still potentially be biased just based off of the demographic variables, right? If I know it's mm -hmm. a woman or if I know if it's a, an African-American or whatever, theoretically, if, if I have biases toward those populations, I could, it could affect my review. I mean, I feel moving forward as a field, um, that's something we're going to have to look at anyway. And it's so difficult to say because I know, especially with leadership, there are a lot of people with this level of thinking in which 
they, they don't have the training necessary to be able to check their own implicit bias um, in order to do that. But moving forward, I, I, do, I do want to see that not necessarily having to play a contributing factor to um, the peer review process only because it, I mean, I feel like it's more important to understand the results with more objective data. And I, I kind of see the demographics adding to that and not necessarily taking away from it. Um, I, I feel like that has, that will probably move forward as far as it comes to education of, I guess, the newer generation as they're learning this information now. And maybe that's something that we can take part in as we move forward as a field. Awesome. The last section of your paper focuses on the faculty, staff, and students. And again, how anti-racism and multiculturalism could be emphasized. Can you, can you sort of introduce us to, to how those ideas may be embedded within faculty, staff, and students? The faculty, staff, and students sections um, of the paper are really just about what are things that you could do at, an at a university level or a program level that will support um, the mission, I would say, of uh, multiculturalism and diversity. And so, um, you know, everybody needs to be trained, first of all. Um, there's lots of faculty, for example, who don't feel comfortable with um, how to deal with uh, microaggressions in the classroom. And, you know, if you're having like a diversity statement or something like that on your website or on your syllabi now, then there's going to be an expectation actually now from the students that you should be, you know, well-equipped to deal with certain issues and to have certain conversations. And now also if we're requiring readings that bring up these issues, then it seems like the faculty need to be uh, trained well enough to be able to handle conversations that could become hot or difficult or whatever in the classroom. So everybody needs to get trained. And um, that is uh, first off of a huge important part of it. Another is to just try to figure out ways to create a culture within um, the setting that makes people feel like everyone wants to value learning about cultures, listening non-judgmentally to people and providing different supportive spaces and platforms for people to be able to express their feelings and so on. Um, and creating a space basically that's, you know, brave. You know, in the article, we actually use the word safe space. And now I actually think that it isn't, you can't really even have a safe space, honestly, because um, you're always gonna have powerful dif or different power differentials of, you know, um, feeling like someone might retaliate against you, your grade could go down or whatever, if you say something or whatever. So I don't think it's really possible to have a safe space. Um, so I've started to prefer to use the term brave space. Mm. Um, and I think for faculty to try to create brave spaces in their classroom by actually discussing these things in there. And um, so the faculty, along with getting trained on all of this, um, could, this is where committees are good because you can have a faculty committee where let's say it's a group of uh, faculty who all have a shared interest in this topic and they wanna do right by the students and they wanna do right by each other and the staff and so forth. Um, they could be meeting on a regular basis and they could be coming up with ideas and strategies and um, folks can come back to those meetings and they can discuss their experiences like you know in class this happened and here's how I dealt with it and it's I've actually been doing that now for a year um, with faculty 
uh, at my university. And um, at one point we were even meeting every week. We've really decreased it now. We're not doing that anymore, but we would come together and talk about what tools we're using in the classroom and talk if someone used something, they would say, you know, how did that work out for you? What happened? Did, what, did, was it a positive experience or did anything negative occur? If something negative occurred, how did you handle it? And so on. And we all kind of give each other advice. It's like a support group, I guess you could say, for continuous learning and growth um, from each other. Uh, so there's those kinds of things that faculty can be doing. And then, of course, we also have to try to figure out how are we going to recruit and hire faculty um, so that we actually uphold our mission. So we shouldn't just say we we value diversity and then everybody's going to be white, right? Like that makes zero sense whatsoever. So we have to make sure that we're actually trying to um, recruit faculty to um, be at our university. And uh, so for that, it's important to also figure out what the reinforcers might be for those individuals and make sure that we're highlighting um, that we're an inclusive environment and what inclusive policies we have and so on. But then once they're there too, we have to retain them. So it's like, how do you make sure that once they're there that they don't feel like you were just using tokenism, which would be basically like, we wanna say we check the box that we have the BIPOC individual on our faculty and now we're done. You know, um, no, that's not how it is. Instead, they need to feel like they're included. Um, they shouldn't be asked to do all of the diversity work um, because unfortunately that does happen a lot um, where they're viewed as the expert or something or the spokesperson for their race almost at times, um, which is actually really um, a microaggression and it makes people feel mistreated and used. And all, a lot of times they're not even paid extra for doing a whole bunch of extra work that under, other people aren't asked that are white, for example, are not asked to do and so on. Um, and also when you have like things that occur in the classroom where let's say microaggression occurs in the classroom between students and so on, if you have a faculty who doesn't know how to handle it. Sometimes the BIPOC faculty get asked to come in and consult. And so as you can imagine, it's a lot of energy and work and it's tiring and it's also emotionally draining. Um, and so you have to figure out how can you make sure that that's not happening, that they are at least getting compensated or if not compensated, that they are getting recognized for that work when it comes to tenure and promotion and that maybe not so much value is put on other tasks like publishing constantly and so forth. You know, if they're putting a lot of service and work into these other areas that are a part of the mission and the values of the program, that needs to have equal weight. Um, also their teaching evaluations might look a little worse um, if they are the one that has to teach the multiculturalism and diversity course. Um, and they're getting in a lot of these deep discussions with students where people's, um, you know, are getting emotional or whatever. So. There's that too. Sometimes the people that teach those classes get the worst teaching evaluations because um, sometimes people in the classroom don't agree with what they're learning. Um, and maybe they're still like showing a bit of a racist um, view towards things. And so they give bad teaching evaluations and that needs to be um, considered as well. Or if a faculty actually uh, responds to a microaggression in class and choose not to ignore it, which by the way, ignoring it would be considered a racist behavior because you're just allowing that to occur, right? So if they do that um, and they actually maybe talk to the, the student who engaged in the microaggression outside of class or something, that person might give them a bad teaching evaluation or they might complain to the dean or whatever. All of that, the faculty need to feel like they're supported. They need to feel like the administration has their back, that the administration realizes that they're being put under these circumstances. So 
Um, those are like the main highlight points, I would say, for faculty and staff. And then, um, you know, I think it's appropriate since Victoria actually was a student um, recently. It would be very cool if you want to answer that one. Yeah, of course. Um, I just wanted to highlight one of your answers, um, talking about the the teachers responding when microaggressions do occur. This is a very big deal. Like if as a teacher, um, some uh, a student in the class responds to me using a microaggression and my teacher doesn't model appropriate anti-racist behavior, not only will I lose faith in the school, I will lose faith in that teacher and I will not want to show up to that class. And that kind of ties into retention, which is one of the one of the things I wanted to talk about. Um, when we're trying to keep students at um, at our universities, we have to have these, and I like like the term you use, brave spaces. Um, as for example, one idea that Dr. Abdullah had was having a center for BIPOC student success. And this isn't necessary to create any type of division. It's more to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Reinforce a student's learning. Um, it's more to encourage the student and to encourage their mentorship. Another example could be to have that mentorship program. Um, I remember as a student coming into it, as we talked about, coming into the graduate program and just knowing nothing at all, having no idea where I even was or what I applied for. Um, but I can imagine coming in as someone who may speak a different language and not necessarily take to the information as well. And having a mentorship program like that or something similar which in which I can get writing tips in which there will be um, access to maybe senior students um, or they'll just be like, the, like she said, the support groups that can kind of just help me through some of the things that the students even may say that are outside of the teacher's control. That's gonna be really helpful with retention. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to getting students, um, I think it's important to know that there are a lot of things blocking students from getting to graduate school. Um, that one of those being social um, economical problems and some of those being the inability to actually go to college in general or being a first generational college student. So I think when we look at recruitment, we, we need to look at the systems in which allow or disallow someone to get into school. And one of those can be the, the GRE, um, which have been found to have very little predictive validity when it comes to who's going to succeed in the schools um, it really just, it tells you who knows how to take a test and who doesn't know how to take a test and who applied for, or who paid for a class to get them to, um, score higher on that. I can tell you, I couldn't afford to pay for it. So when I took my SATs, those were terrible, but <laughs> I still ended up getting in, uh, um, through sports. So uh, an alternative method for some of these assessments, um, could be having the, having people submit portfolios or, having people submit written assignments or um, even, even having a separate committee who helps applicants um, essentially finish their application, um, do the portfolio too, do the written assignments. These things are really important because the fact of the matter is that um, people of low socioeconomical status don't have the learning history um, sometimes required in order to reach this high level of academics. That makes a lot of sense. I've also heard cost of applications, right? Absolutely. Do you, do you want to charge $200 to apply to your graduate program? Well, you're kind of excluding uh, anyone who has socioeconomic, you know, struggles. Um, yeah, and of course, that's going to disproportionately affect certain populations. 
Yeah, and Cody, I remember being a student and applying to multiple at the same time. I could not afford any of them. So um, definitely, that's that's a really good point. Absolutely. Uh, in the student section, you talk about alumni and potentially how alumni can be involved or or sort of kept in touch. But could could you, could you speak about how alumni can be involved in, in this scenario? Sure. I mean, I have an easy answer, social media. (laughs) So you can have a graduate school um, Facebook page in which you have um, some alumni there discussing some of their um, experiences and some maybe even posting some resources for um, students who are currently in the program to follow um, in order to succeed once they get out. You can also... um, provide support through just doing an alumni mentorship program um, and just having them follow a student throughout their journey through the graduate school as well. That makes sense. And yeah, I like your suggestion around the mentorship and alumni seem like a great population to sort of tap into as a resource for something like that. I have so many more questions. Uh, I wish, I, I, I wish we had sort of an infinite amount of time we could talk about this. I do have sort of two-ish final questions. It seems, from from my perspective anyway, pretty common within the field of behavior analysis to sort of lament or complain about the lack of diverse BCBAs or potentially, especially Black BCBAs in the field of behavior analysis. Are the suggestions you write about in your paper something that's going to potentially help that particular issue? Um, I think personally, as a student who went to the Pepperdine program, prior to them making the changes that she's discussing now, in nature, they did make me feel welcome as a BIPOC student. The way that they um, facilitated my learning was a way that I had never, um, I had never contacted prior and it really just boosted my motivation not only as a clinician but as a black clinician and it kind of did make me feel like the area that I was in was a safe space um, a brave space sorry let me I'm going to start using that I have to um, uh, overdo my vocabulary um, but I will say now with these changes I only see that increasing um, so as two of the professors currently at Pepperdine who wrote this information in and who are making the changes Um, the appropriate changes to their graduate school program, I really only see this increasing the amount of um, the amount of BIPOC um, practitioners that we're going to see in the upcoming years. I I couldn't agree more with that. As a as a graduate program director, looking at, you know, the issues within programs or recruiting people, maintaining people, etc. I think what you've provided here is a, is a really amazing resource and I think is a really promising way of, of beginning to address the, what I think to be as a, is a well-documented issue, which is a lack of diversity at the BCBA, BCBAD levels. So thank you to both of you for your time. Before we take off, are there any other resources, suggestions, things that you wish you could have mentioned earlier that you wanna you wanna leave 
this interview off with? There was one, it isn't necessarily geared towards our paper, but it is geared towards an anti-racist and accountability agenda that I got to watch at a webinar at ABAI. So there's this paper coming out being co-authored by Dr. Nora Syed, David Cox, and Ronnie Dietrich. And essentially what they're doing is, or what they have done is they've downloaded the public responses that different ABA organizations made following the murder of George Floyd. And they're analyzing them in terms of what the organization said, to what extent in which they've communicated some type of actionable item and the timeliness of that response. And then their plan is to go on and to see to what extent um, they've held themselves accountable to that. And I think that that's a really big first step in our field because what we were all talking about, me, uh, Adele and Lucy, is that a lot of the uh, information in the research is really just discussing the problem and there was very little solutions involved. So I just, I wanted to like highlight that because I thought it was really cool. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and I'll just piggyback on and say that um, there's a really, you know, a lot of great trainings that are available online for individuals who want to learn more about um, being anti-racist. Of course, there's Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, but in addition to that, um, for academics, there's a website called Academics for Black Wellness and Survival. And that was a huge contribution to me when I, and um, Lucine and Victoria, when we were writing this paper. Um, we learned so, so much, um, both from Dr. Della, as well as from Paris Bellamy. Um, I also want to say that there's um, a really great training that's a, shorter than that one. So if you don't have the time to put into that one, there's another one that's six hours long and it's by the Diversity and Resiliency Institute of El Paso. And that one is really, really informational as well. And then finally, a book that I just think is like an absolute must do for anyone who's white is um, Layla Saad's book called Me and White Supremacy. And I know the title um, might throw some folks off, but I'm telling you this, it's a workbook and it's really, really good for self-exploration and self-evaluation and seeing what your current thought patterns are around these issues and really helps to kind of crack that open and help you to move along so that you can um, make good progress and do good work with yourself. So, Amazing. Thank you for sharing those resources. And again, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent podcast papers that we should review. The links are found in our show notes. I'd also like to thank a few people for creating this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin. I'd also like to thank the production assistant for this episode, Jackie Wilson. Finally, I'd like to thank Jim Carr and his band New Latitude for letting us sample their song Cruising Altitude throughout this podcast. <laughs>